Ah, yes, you're listening to Life 101, where we live in faith every day. This is Line Upon Line, where we study God's Word line by line. And I'm your host, Pastor Adrian. Verses 9 and 10 says, Whom shall he teach knowledge? And whom shall he make to understand doctrine? And then he answers, Them that are weaned from the milk and drawn from the breasts. For precept must be upon precept, precept upon precept, line upon line, here a little and there a little. So if you're serious about your walk with God and you want to understand true doctrine, it's time to get your Bible and follow along as we study God's Word. It's time to be weaned from the milk. Get your Bible, tell a friend, tell your pastor about this study, and let's get into God's Word line upon line. Isaiah 44 and verse 1, and I'll just uh, work on this while I'm reading it, so pardon me. Isaiah 44 and verse 1, he says, Yet now hear, O Jacob, my servant. So Jacob is God's servant, and, and he is now addressing Jacob and saying, Listen to this, uh, listen to this, my servant Jacob. And Israel, whom I have chosen. So here, Isaiah has a lot to say specifically to the, tri the house of Judah, but also the prophecies are to the broader house of Israel. But he says here, yet here, now hear, O Jacob, my servant. So Jacob is God's servant. Israel is the one whom he has chosen. And the nations have a lot of uh, problems with this. They resent the fact that God has chosen Israel, that God has chosen Jacob. And that's something that all the nations just have to get over and get used to, that God has a servant in Jacob. And so he says, Thus says the Lord that made you and formed you from the womb, which will help you. Fear not, O Jacob, my servant, and you, and he uses this term here, Jeshurun, whom I have chosen. And I'm not going to go back over that uh, again. I explained in detail last week what God means by this code term, Jeshurun. And so and you have to go back into Deuteronomy to understand that. So again, if you missed the first part of Isaiah 44, I'd encourage you to go to the archive and, and pick up uh, Isaiah 44, where I explain what God means by Jeshurun. But in a nutshell, it's Israel and Israel's glory. Israel, when they, in God's terms, they wax fat. 
It's uh, the upright one, how Israel is supposed to be. Unfortunately, when Israel was in its glory, Israel became arrogant and rebelled against God. And I explained that in last week's study. And then he says, so, don't, so it's a time of fearfulness for Jacob. But God says to Jacob, do not fear. And he, I've chosen you. For I will pour water upon him that is thirsty and floods upon the dry ground. I will pour out my spirit upon your seed and my blessing upon your offspring. So this is a promise that God has made. And we are very clear as we study the word of God that God never reneges on his promises. He never goes back on his word. And so there's this outstanding promise to Israel that God is going to pour out his spirit upon Israel's seed. And so the house of Israel is going to be full of the Holy Spirit. And it's going to stand out and stand apart from the rest of the world. This is God's promise. And so we're looking for the fulfillment of this promise. And so let's remember that Isaiah is telling us, or God is telling us through Isaiah, that Israel should not be afraid and that there's going to come a time when he's going to pour out his spirit upon the seed of Israel and his blessing upon their offspring. And then he says this, and they shall spring up as among the grass, as willows by the water courses. So this is a figurative language. And so uh, Israel is going to be rejuvenated and they're going to be full of life and they're going to spring up from whatever devastation they had suffered. And then it makes, he makes it clear that he, he, this is figurative language and he's speaking of people that are going to spring up. And he explains, one shall say, I am the Lord's. So this is an Israelite. This is not just anybody. This is an Israelite. He's going to say, I am the Lord's. And another shall call himself by the name of Jacob. This is a big deal. Because Jacob and the seed of Jacob are coming out of time of humiliation. They have been utterly humiliated. They have been desolate. They've been destroyed. It's been a shame to, be, to have the name of Jacob. You, you, you have been a byword, you've been a proverb, you've been laughed at and derided. And yet, Isaiah is saying a time's going to come when people are going to be proud to say, I'm a Jacobite, I'm an Israelite, I'm a Jew. This time is coming. So one will boast that I'm the Lord's. And another is going to call himself by the name of Jacob. And another shall subscribe with his hand unto the Lord and surname himself by the name of Israel. So he's the, they're going to be happy to say, I'm an Israelite. And so let's see this prophecy now in, in Zechariah. Zechariah sees this time as well. And what he says is this. So Zechariah makes it clear. And he says, <clears throat> Thus says the Lord of hosts. So again, this is God speaking, and he will not go back on his word. Thus says the Lord of hosts, In those days it shall come to pass that ten men shall take hold out of all the languages of the nations. So all these different nations who have their different gods that they serve, they're going to come from these nations. And it, he says, this shall come to pass in the last days, that ten men shall take hold out of all the languages of the nations, even shall take hold of the skirt of him that is a Jew. So we're coming to a time, Isaiah is telling us, that we're coming up to a time when it will be a, a, people will be proud to say they are Jewish. They will boast that they are Jewish. 
and the rest of the world will acknowledge the role of the Jew. And they're going to take hold of the skirt of him that is a Jew, saying, We will go with you, for we have heard that God is with you. This is a, uh, a remarkable acknowledgement of the nations, that, that God is with Judah. And Jeremiah sees the same thing as well. He says, In those days, and in that time, says the Lord, the children of Israel shall come, they and the children of Judah together. Notice there's a difference. There are the, the house of Israel, and there's the house of Judah. And there's coming a time when they're going to come together, both the, the children of Israel shall come, and the children of Judah will come with them, going and weeping. So they're going to go, and, and they're, they're going to Jerusalem, and they're weeping as they go. They shall go and seek the Lord their God. So these specific people, not everybody, not everybody, but these specific people, the house of Israel and the house of Judah, when God moves to, to uh, redeem his elect, when he comes into the earth to save his elect, the ones that he has chosen, that they are going to repent wholeheartedly. That's what, that's what Moses saw in Deuteronomy. And he told them, you're going to be scattered, you're going to be enslaved, you're going to be taken to the nations, you're going to be exiled, you're going to be humiliated, and you're going to come to a true and a deep repentance. And when you come to that true and deep repentance, God is going to gather you from all the nations that he has driven you. Both Judah, well, when, when Moses gave this uh, prophecy, he was speaking to the whole house of Israel before they had divided. So it's, it's not just Judah, it's the, the whole house of Israel. He says, they shall go and seek the Lord their God. They shall ask the way to Zion with their faces toward Zion, saying, come and let us join ourselves to the Lord in a perpetual covenant that shall not be forgotten. So, so we're coming out of this time. So, so right, th this is a time when they will be proud to say, I'm a Jew, I'm an Israelite, I belong to Jacob. Well, right now, or, or just before this time, this will not be the case. That there's going to be such anti-Semitism that you, you, you need to hide if you're a Jew. That people are, Jews are going to be hated. And certainly we see an ideology that is spreading like wildfire all over the world. And it has built into its ideology, built into its sacred text, a perpetual hatred of the Jew. And so as they dominate the world, as this ideology grows and spreads all over the world, it's going to be a shame to be a Jew. And, and Jews right now are facing unprecedented anti-Semitism, unprecedented attacks. And, you know, people think that uh, the Catholic Church is, is the one we should worry about. The Catholic Church has become lame. The Catholic Church is basically castrated. It has no power, no potency. Yeah, they have gone over to Marxism, and as Marxists, they are happy to cooperate with Islam. So there's one ideology that's dominating today. It's growing. They, they cannot build mosques fast enough. So we need to be able to fast forward and say 10, 15, 20, 30 years from now, what is the ideology that is going to be uh, really the most powerful, the most potent, that will be unstoppable? What is the ideology that nobody will be able to stop? Even today, when you look in Christian churches, what is happening? Look at this. You're going to see now an imam inside a Christian church. This is a Christian church. 
and just watch closely and listen carefully. Moses. Now what? All of them in submission. Absolute conquest. Allah is greater than Jesus Christ. He's greater than your God. And they all just sit there and listen as he goes on and on about how great their God is and how he is greater than their God. And so this is, <laughs> this is where these Western nations are heading. They are going to be dominated and subjugated. And Moses prophesied this from the very beginning. This is what's going to happen. But here he's, uh, uh, um, Jeremiah is seeing a time when the Jew will join himself in a perpetual covenant that shall not be forgotten. Zechariah saw it as well. He says, It shall be that whoso will not come up of all the families of the earth unto Jerusalem to worship the King, the Lord of hosts, even upon them shall be no rain. So anybody on the earth at this time who does not acknowledge that God is in Jerusalem and that God is the God of Israel, they will be cursed. They will die a slow, agonizing death. He goes on to say, and if the family of Egypt, we know that Egyptians are Muslim, if the family of Egypt does not go up and come not and have that have no rain, so first they're going to have no rain, if they still continue to be stubborn, God is not going to stop there. There shall be the plague. So not just famine, but now on top of the famine, they will have the plague, wherewith the Lord will smite the heathen that come not up to keep the Feast of Tabernacles. So they will have to come and acknowledge the, the, the God, that God is the God of Israel and that the worship practices in Israel, in Jerusalem, are the true worship practices. And they're going to have to forsake their false practices. He goes on to say, This shall be the punishment of Egypt, not just Egypt, and the punishment of all nations that come not up to keep the Feast of Tabernacles. So God is going to act at this end time. He's going to restore his, his covenant people. And all the nations of the earth are going to have to acknowledge that God is the God of Israel. All the prophets speak the same thing. They all see the same thing. Here Joel says, Then will, be the Lord, then will the Lord be jealous for his land. So it means somebody has gone in and taken the land. And God is furious and he's going to take it back. Then will the Lord be jealous for his land, and we have to know what his land is. And, you know, uh, as great as America is, and we know that America is a 
phenomenal nation, the greatest empire ever. But as great as America is, that is not God's land. His land is the land that he promised to Israel, to Abraham, and then down to Israel, from the Euphrates to the River Nile. That whole area, that plot of land in the Middle East, this is the land. And this is the land that he prophesies about. And so he's going to be jealous for this land. And he's going to have pity for his people. That the, the, this land has been overrun. And Jerusalem in particular has been overrun. And the people have been subjugated and, and taken captive and enslaved and sold into slavery and spread all over the earth. And God is going to be jealous for this land. And, and what is the, the abomination of desolation that has been set up in this land. And he's going to have pity even though these people deserve this punishment, he's finally going to have pity on them. He's going to have pity for his people. This is what Joel is seeing. Yes, the Lord will answer and say unto his people, Behold, I will send you corn. And these are people who've been subjugated, they've been defeated, they've been humiliated, and God is going to say, You know what? I'm going to send you corn and wine and oil, and you shall be satisfied with it. And I will no more make you a reproach among the heathen. So we're, we're going to go from this time when to say you are an Israelite, to say that you are a Jew, will be to be completely humiliated and destroyed, to be murdered, to be enslaved, to be fully humiliated. And this is according to the covenant. This has to happen. But then God is going to say, okay, it's going to stop. Enough. I will no more make you a reproach among the heathen. But I will remove far off from you the northern army. And Isaiah, as we when we go back to the first part, chapters 1 to 39, Isaiah will tell us very specifically who the northern army is. But just note here that Joel sees it, that it's the northern army that's going to put its boot on the neck of Judah. Behold, I will remove far off you, far off from you, the northern army. And will drive him into a land barren and desolate. So we have to look at the promised land and who's north of that that's going to come in and invade and, and have the triumph over Judah. But God is going to drive him into a land that's barren and desolate with his face toward the east sea and his hind part toward the utmost sea and his stink shall come up and his ill savor shall come up because he has done great things. Great things means... Um, uh, horrendous things. He has done horrendous things to God's covenant people. And then God is going to finally act and destroy him. This army from the north. The king of the north. Fear not, O land. Again, we have to see this. that Don't, don't get confused and think it's different types of people. God is talking about the land and the people who belong in that land. So a lot of these prophecies in Joel, we'll see it in Isaiah, we'll see it in Ezekiel and Jeremiah, where they prophesy to the land so that we don't get confused. And we understand exactly who God is talking about and, and how these prophecies in the end time are going to unfold and where Jesus Christ's focus is for the end time. His focus is on the land. Fear not, O land. Be glad and rejoice, for the Lord will do great things. He's going to do great things in this land. Right now you turn on the news and look at this, the Middle East. It is a mess. It is a disaster. And it's going to get a lot worse. It is going to be completely desolate. The devil is fighting 
over this land because he knows that it's this land that God has a plan for. And so God is telling the land, I will do great things with this land. And great means great. It means uh, spectacular. When we go into the millennium, spectacular things are going to be done with this land. And you shall know that I am in the middle of Israel. I'm in the midst of Israel. This is the people Israel. And that I am the Lord your God. So God is going to gather the people of Israel and bring them into this land. And he will be in the midst of his people. And that I am the Lord your God and none else. No one else is your God. Don't, don't be fooled by all of these false prophets, false teachers that are coming in to tell you that their God is greater and that you have another God. Don't be deceived. You don't have another God. Your God is the God of the Bible who, who, who declares ahead of time what is going to happen and no one can stop it. This is, the, this is, this is what he says is his proof that everything that he declared about his people Israel and Judah Everything that he said about them is going to come to pass precisely. And this is his proof that he's their God. I am the Lord your God and none else. And my people shall never be ashamed. So it's again, not just Judah, because Judah are the covenant people, but he's going to rescue the whole house of Israel. And the whole, the, the whole seed of Jacob will never be ashamed anymore. From this moment when Christ returns, from this point forward, they will, God will be glorified in the house of Israel. None else. And, and my people shall never be ashamed. And it shall come to pass that afterward, notice Joel sees the same thing that Isaiah saw. That in the end time, he says, it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh. Not, not the whole human race. This is not all flesh all over the world. This is the house of Israel and the house of Judah. When he says that, um, unless those days would be shortened, no flesh would be saved alive. It's not no flesh anywhere on the planet. It's no covenant flesh. None of the house of Judah would be left. If he didn't, the, 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 the devil's plan is to completely destroy this people. And unless he acted, the devil would have his way, and then God would be a liar. But because God has pronounced a promise upon this people, when the devil is about to completely wipe out any trace of the house of Israel or the house of Judah, that's when God acts. So that the flesh, the covenant, the elect are saved. And so here, it's the elect. That he will pour out his spirit upon the covenant flesh. And your sons and your daughters, to make it really clear, it's not the whole world, but your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams. Your young men shall see visions. This is what Isaiah saw. This is what Joel saw. And this is what the Apostle Peter thought he was seeing in Acts 2. When the church was established and they were keeping Pentecost and the Spirit just came down upon all of the covenant people. Uh, upon those that were faithful to Christ. And so he said, this is that which was spoken of the prophet Isaiah. Because they didn't know, and they were asking, is this the time, Lord, that you're going to restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said, it's not for you to know the time. You, just, you must just go to stay in Jerusalem until this power comes down upon you, and you're going to be my witnesses. And so they are searching, they know this, the prophecies, and they thought, okay, this is it. But the way God's prophecies work is he lays out the pattern, and then the pattern just keeps repeating. It keeps repeating until it's ultimately fulfilled. And so this, he laid down the pattern, 
And Peter, with the first Pentecost of, of the church after Christ's resurrection, he saw this and said, this is it. But it wasn't. It was just a foretaste of what's coming. So from Pentecost, we get a glimpse of what this time is going to be like. That God is going to rescue his people from the four corners of the earth, and then he's going to pour his spirit upon them, and they will be set up as the king-priest nation of the whole earth. Those of us who are blessed to be in the first fruits, to be among the first fruits, we will be born into the family of God. We will be on the God plane overseeing this human operation as God puts things in order and the earth is finally in order with Israel as the head nation. We will be in the kingdom and we'll be overseeing this and it'll be a, a thousand year process of bringing the rest of humanity into the family of God. And as they're coming into the family of God, they have to acknowledge that God is the God of Israel. So it's a phenomenal, it's a glorious, God is going to do great things. He goes on to say, and also upon the servants and upon the handmaids, in those days, this is the end time, and, and Peter thought he was living in the end time, but he wasn't. Another 2,000 years had to pass. But in those days will I pour out my spirit. So God is going to do this very strange work where he's going to punish his people, and then he's going to gather his people, and then he's going to pour out his spirit upon his people, and they'll be the head nation. They'll be like we are today as first fruits, human beings with the Holy Spirit who love God, who love his law, who want to please him and do his will. His, his law is written upon our hearts. We, we will now be in the family of God, helping these human beings who will be the head nation, the priest nation, who will have the Holy Spirit as we do today, and they'll be teaching the rest of the nations. And I will show wonders in the heavens and in the earth, blood and fire and pillars of smoke. This is what tells us that this is an end time prophecy. The sun shall be turned into darkness. We know from Revelation, this is what happens when Christ returns. We know from Matthew 24 that we're not to be deceived about his return, that it's when we see these signs, that's when he'll return. The sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the great and the terrible day of the Lord comes. And so this is the time when he's going to gather his people and pour out his spirit and it shall come to pass that whosoever and and we misread this this is not a whosoever all over the world we know from Revelation 1 7 when Christ returns those that pierced him will acknowledge him the rest of the world will wail because of him it's good news for those who pierced him he's coming to rescue them it is terrible it is horrendous news for the nations and they're going to wail because of him so when it says whosoever shall call on the name of the Lord this is speaking of the covenant people those those of God's people that he's moving to rescue when they call upon his name he's coming to deliver them he's coming to redeem them and set them as the head nation it shall come to pass that whoever shall call on the name of the Lord shall be delivered why for in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem shall be deliverance. Nowhere else. Not in the desert. Nowhere else. Only in Jerusalem, in Mount Zion. So when this all comes to pass, people are going to finally acknowledge that God is the God of Israel, and they're going to come to Jerusalem to keep the Feast of Tabernacles, but there are still going to be some that resist, that say, no, Allahu Akbar. 
God, Allah is the great God. We will not acknowledge the Jew. And then God is going to punish them severely until they repent. So, so this is not good news in general for the whole world. And it's not anybody in the world that calls upon the name of God. God is coming to redeem his people and to restore his people. Both the house of Israel and the house of Judah. For in Zion and in Jerusalem shall be deliverance. As the Lord has said, in the remnant whom the Lord shall call. So this is what Isaiah is making, us, making clear to us, that Jacob should not be afraid, that Israel should fear not, that those of us who are first fruits should declare unto Judah and the cities of Judah, behold your God. We need to say to Judah and the cities of Judah, fear not, your God is coming with a strong hand to redeem you. Not to the whole world. This is not a, 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 just a pass for everybody. This is, he's coming to rescue his people. He's opened up the first fruits calling to the Gentiles so that Gentiles can come in to the covenant. And even many of these Gentiles are actually Israelites that God is using the door of the Gentiles to gather the Israelites who are lost and don't know themselves to come into the first fruits calling. And then as we come into the first fruits calling, we're about our father's business. And our father's business is to redeem his people. And so we have to declare this good news to his people. Don't be afraid. He's coming to redeem you. And so this remnant, when they're destroying all of God's people, and unless God acted, no flesh would be saved alive, but there is going to be a remnant. And he's, the salvation will be in this remnant whom the Lord shall call. For behold, in those days, this is speaking of the end time, and in that time, when I shall bring again the captivity of Judah and Jerusalem. So, so he's going to release them from this captivity. I will also gather all nations. So again, this is how we see from Joel, it's not good news for everybody. He's coming to redeem his people, not the nations. The nations will have to learn at the feet of his people. So he's coming to redeem his people. And we can see very clearly from Joel that he's going to release his people from captivity. And at the same time, when he's releasing his people from captivity, he says this, I will also gather all nations and will bring them down into the valley of Jehoshaphat and will plead with them there for my people and for my heritage, Israel, whom they have scattered among the nations and parted my land. This is the controversy of the end time, that people are moving into the Holy Land which unfortunately God's people have polluted, and so they don't belong there. They're going to be exiled, they're going to be taken captive, but God has promised that they are the only ones that can have this land, because he promised it in an everlasting covenant to his friend Abraham, and through Abraham to Israel. Now Israel has corrupted themselves, Judah is the only, the house of Israel is gone, is divorced, Judah is the only one left, God is going to now act in this covenant with Judah to save all Israel and through Israel to save the rest of the world. But the rest of the world he's not dealing with right now. His focus, and that's why even when he came, it was very clear that his focus was Israel, nobody else. And so he says he's going to plead that there's a controversy. It's this, uh, this dramatic court case that's going to take place. And God has his witnesses and the nations, well, they have to bring their witnesses. They have to plead their cause. But God is going to plead his cause. And he says he's going to plead with the nations. He's going to gather them in the valley of Jehoshaphat. And that's where he's going to plead with them 
For what? For his people. It means they have taken his people captive. And God is now coming to plead for the release and the, the re restoration of his heritage. He, he calls Israel his heritage. He's going to inherit Israel. The God of the universe is coming to earth and his inheritance is the tribe of Israel, or the tribes of Israel, the house of Israel, whom the nations have scattered among themselves and they parted his land. God is offended. This is his land and they carved it up as if it was theirs. And they have cast lots for my people. So there's a process that they've enslaved these people. They've cast lots for my people and have given a boy for a harlot. This is how they're treating the holy people. Like they just have no value at all. They've, they've, they've given a boy for a harlot and they've sold a girl for wine that they might drink. Thus says the Lord. So God is offended by this. And this is what he says. He's the king of Israel. Thus says the Lord, the king of Israel. And his redeemer, the Lord of hosts. So he's the king of Israel and he's the redeemer of Israel. This is how God identifies himself. Where in this text does God say he's the king of the Gentiles? Where in this text does God say, I'm coming to save the Gentiles? He's the redeemer of Israel. Israel is his inheritance. And unless Israel is right, the plan of God is not right. Because he promised that this will be the head nation. And he's going to restore this nation. And the whole world is going to acknowledge that God is the king of Israel. That God is the Holy One of Israel. That God will be glorified in Israel. And so he's coming to redeem Israel. Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel, and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts. So he has a whole army that's coming to save Israel. Notice what he says. I am the first and I am the last. And beside me there is no God. So anybody who's claiming that there's a God greater than the God of the Bible... God is saying it's false. There's no God beside me. And this is the Holy One, the Redeemer speaking. This is Jesus Christ speaking. He's saying, beside me, there's no God. He is the God of Israel. And he goes on to say, so this, I'm the first and the last, we see that repeatedly in the book of Revelation. And we're told to keep reading Revelation. Don't go away from it. Because as things unfold, we have to see them through the lens of the book of Revelation. And he reminds us in Revelation that he's the first and the last. Repeatedly he says, I'm the Alpha and Omega. I'm the first and the last. And he tells them to write what you see, write it in a book and send it to the churches. Why? Because we have to be about our Father's business. And he's the first and the last. And so everything that he said anciently is going to come to pass. Why? Because he's the last. He's going to make sure that everything he said anciently comes to pass exactly as he has said. So he goes on to send it to the seven churches, and then in verse 17 he repeats it again. And he says it several times throughout the book, that he fell at his feet and he laid his right hand upon me, saying, Don't be afraid. I'm the first and the last. I, I, I said the first word, and I get the last word. And whatever deceivers say in between, don't worry about them. They are like grass. They're just going to wither away. The, the God of the Bible and the prophecies in the Bible are going to come to pass exactly as God says. Why? Because he's the first and the last. He declares from ancient times that which is not yet done, saying, my plans will stand. Back to Isaiah 44. 
and who, as I, shall call and shall declare it. So he's saying, I, I am your God. There's no one else that can do what I do. So who, like me, is going to declare in advance what's going to happen to you, what's going to happen to the land, and then bring it to pass? And who, as I, shall call and shall declare it, and set it in order for me, since I appointed the ancient people, and the ancient people are Israel, and the things that are coming and shall come. He's the first and last. So everything in this book, Isaiah, and in fact, the whole Bible, it's, it's from, from the Torah, the prophecies of Moses are going to come to pass. Don't, don't worry about it. You can, if you have one penny left in your name, you can bet on this. You can take all your wealth and bet on this if you're a betting man or a betting woman. Don't worry. What makes God God is the fact that he speaks and it's so. That's what makes God God. And let them show unto them. So who else can do this? And this this should really ring a bell. So this is the God. This God is the one who declares in advance, and then it comes to pass. And when Jesus was here, and he gave us the prophecies in Matthew 24, he said this to the disciples: "Behold, I have told you before." He's declaring that he's the Holy One of Israel. He's the only one that has this ability to say in advance what's going to happen, and then it happens exactly as he says. So if we know the character of God, if we, under, if we are studying the scriptures and then God is speaking, we're like, this is God. This is the same God. He, he, he uh, really um, validates himself on his ability to speak and bring it to pass. Back to Isaiah 44. Fear you not. This Bible, it's about rewiring our perception. And us then having our perception rewired so that we can encourage the house of Judah to not be afraid. To, when, when they see things coming to pass, rather than to be fearful, to be encouraged. To realize that this is happening exactly as God said. Fear you not, neither be afraid. The exact same thing that Christ said in the Gospels. Do not fear them. Fear you not, neither be afraid. Haven't I told you from that time? It's the same thing he said in Matthew 24. Behold, I've told you beforehand. It's the same God. Have not I told you thee from that time and have declared it? This is what God is saying. Like, Don't you realize I'm the one who said all of this is going to happen? And so when you see this happening, don't be afraid. It, it shows you that I'm in complete control. In fact, that's the way the book of Revelation is laid out. Before we get into all the fearful things, we see the throne room of God and everything is in order in heaven so that we understand that, wow, God is in full control here and all the chaos that's happening on earth, it's according to his will. Nothing to be afraid of. Fear you not, neither be afraid. Haven't I told you from that time and have declared it? You are even my witnesses. So he has a controversy with the nations and he's saying, the house of Judah, hear my witnesses. I'm going to ask you to, to tell the nations what I told you and to show them how everything has come to pass exactly as I have said. And this is the proof that I am God because of your existence and, and all of your experiences that have happened and unfolded exactly as I have said. So you are my witnesses. 
Is there a God beside me? Yeah, there is no God. I know not any. So this is our answer to the whole, all the false religions, and especially the big one in our time, which is Islam, which is growing like wildfire, conquering all these different nations, and, and now we have this, um, what is it called? The uh, I don't know if you've seen this, but if you haven't, you should definitely uh, look it up. And this is called the... Um, it's called the, Inter the Intergovernmental Conference on the Global Compact for Migration. This is taking place in Morocco on December 10th and 11th of this year. So this is a compact that has been written up to uh, regularize migration and to make migration safe. And all of these nations all around the world are expected to sign this and to help anybody who wants to go from any country to any other country that it becomes a legal right it becomes a human right migration which is illegal becomes a human right and anybody can go to any country they don't have to be a refugee they can just say i want to come to your country and that country has to let them in it has to make sure that they get there safely and when they get to that country it has to feed and clothe them and educate them and give all and, and spend all its money uh, looking after them and this is what's happening next month, that all these nations around the world, uh, now America has, Donald, President Donald Trump has said, no way, we're not signing this. Poland has said, no way, we're not saying, signing this. I think Australia has said, we're not signing this. And I think Czech Republic has said, we're not signing this. Hungary has said, we're not signing this. But all the other nations are, are, have agreed to sign it. And in fact, if you're a Canadian, as I am, uh, Canada is actually behind this that our um, immigration minister has said that act, uh, Canada has been actively involved in drafting this compact. So as of next year, migration becomes a human right. And we're, what's the direction of the migration? When, once this comes to pass, do we in Canada say, oh great, we can now go to Somalia. Let's pack up and migrate to Somalia. Or is all the migration one way? Do we have all the Somalians and, and all these third world nations coming to the Judeo-Christian nations who in a matter of just a couple of hundred years have created vast wealth for their citizens, have high standards of hygiene, great um, uh, freedom and, and respect for the individual. And in just a couple of hundred years, and some of these uh, other nations are, are you know, Saudi Arabia, 14, or Saudi Arabia, but Arabia, thousands and thousands of years old. And yet, if it wasn't for discovering oil, they would be impoverished. And most of these third world nations are impoverished, though they're thousands of years old. And these young nations, because they are built on a Judeo-Christian foundation, have flourished. And so when it becomes a human right to migrate, where's everybody gonna go? And and. We, we're not, there's no check for their values. You, they don't have to believe what we believe. No check to see if they are carrying any kind of diseases. They just come in and the taxpayers, and this is the, the ridiculous thing here, is most people in the West, we want socialism. We want free everything. So you combine socialism where everything's free with making migration a human right. And now the third world countries can go on a shopping list. Now, who has the best welfare? Let's go there. 
and they don't have they, they don't have to it doesn't have to be the first nation they land in they can just go shopping and say oh Canada looks like it's got great welfare benefits let's all go there and all the taxpayers in Canada who wanted socialism we must now pay for these migrants and in fact the uh, ship Aquarius in Italy um, they are being fined and charged and maybe even some of them will be imprisoned because of dumping toxic waste into the sea what was the toxic waste it was the clothing that the migrants were wearing because these migrants are carrying diseases that when they threw their clothes into the into the water this was considered highly toxic waste and yet we have to allow these migrants into our country no checks what is going to happen 2019 is going to be an interesting year and in, in the US with the uh, migrant crisis there a lot of these people coming in they're carrying Venezuelan passports but they're fake passports and they're Middle Eastern jihadis coming into America. 2019, it's going to be a very different, difficult year for migrant uh, for Western nations. This is just the beginning of the end. So let's go back to the the text now. And he says here that there is no God. So all of these false gods, we mustn't fall for it. He's he's, he's saying there is no God but but Jesus Christ. They that make a graven image, so now this section of uh, the chapter now, it's talking about idolaters and how, how ridiculous and, and uh, vain it is to worship idols. They that make a graven image are all of them vanity, all of them. Both the nations and the house of Israel and the house of Judah who get involved in idolatry. It's all vanity. And their delectable things shall not profit. And they are their own witnesses. So God says the house of Judah, the house of Israel, these are his witnesses. And he's going to prove to the nations that everything that has befallen them has been exactly as he has said. So these, the house of Israel, house of Judah, are going to declare to the nations what the word of God says and how it has unfolded. They're his witnesses. These people are their own witnesses. They see not, nor know, that they may be ashamed. Who has formed a God or, a mol or molten a graven image? that is profitable for nothing. These idols that they're worshiping is nothing. Behold, all his fellows shall be ashamed. So they're gonna have the upper hand, they're gonna seem very powerful, but when God pleads with his people, all these people, all these nations are gonna be ashamed having worshiped these graven images. And again, this um, ideology that's spreading like wildfire, five times a day, they point to this graven image where they have a stone in the middle of it and the image is graven uh, like a private parts of a woman and it's all idolatry and this is where they think they have the upper hand they're going to be ashamed and the workmen they are of men let them all be gathered together let them stand up yet they shall fear and they shall be ashamed together the smith with the tongs both works in the coals and fashions it with hammers and works it with the strength of his arms Yes, he is hungry, and his strength fails. He drinks no water and is faint. The carpenter stretches out his ruler. He marks it out with a line. He fits it with planes, and he marks it out with the compass and makes it after the figure of a man, according to the beauty of a man, that it may remain in the house. So it's again, all this process of building idols, causing people to think it's something glorious, and it's all vanity. He hews him down cedars, and takes the cypress and the oak, 
which he strengthens for himself among the trees of the forest, he plants an ash, and the rain does nourish it, then shall it be for a man to burn, for he will take thereof and warm himself. So Isaiah is just showing here the stupidity of idolatry. So they go and they look for these special trees and they cut them down and they craft these idols. But with the same wood that they're crafting the idol, they're taking that same wood and burning it so that they can heat themselves. So Isaiah is just mocking them. He'll warm himself, yet, yes, he kindles it and bakes bread. Yes, he makes a god and worships it. He makes it a graven image and falls down there too. So anything that they make, that this physical image that they're bowing down to, whoever made it, they themselves suffer hunger and they're faint, but whatever they're using to craft that idol, they use that same material for other purposes. So how can it be a god? He burns part thereof in the fire, with part thereof he eats flesh. He roasts roast and is satisfied. Yes, he warms himself and says, Aha, I am warm, I have seen the fire. And the residue thereof he makes a god. So again, as I was just saying, this is ridiculous. Even his graven image, he falls down unto it. So again, all over the world, five times a day, they're falling down to this graven image and worships it and prays unto it and says, deliver me for you are my God. So when God moves to act now, they're thinking that their God is going to deliver them. And in fact, Muslims, they have to touch this uh, stone and try to kiss it because on the day of judgment, the stone is going to testify on their behalf and save them. That's what they think. And so they're saying, deliver me. Oh, stone, deliver me. They have not known nor understood, for he has shut their eyes that they cannot see and their hearts that they cannot understand. So there's this uh, veil over the nations and they're easily deceived until Isaiah 25, Christ returns and then he's going to lift the veil. And finally the nations are going to see how deceived they were. And none considers in his heart Neither is there knowledge, nor understanding to say, I have burned part of it in the fire. Yes, also I have baked bread upon the coals thereof. I have roasted flesh and eaten it. And shall I make the residue thereof an abomination? Shall I fall down to the stalk of a tree? So again, these material things that they make and then they fall down to it. This is, what, this is what's been done anciently. To this day, it's what's happening. He feeds on ashes. A deceived heart has turned him aside that he cannot deliver his soul, nor say, is there not a lie in my right hand? So they're unable to see that this is a lie. They've got their sword and they're chopping off people's heads and they can't see this is a lie in my right hand. Remember these, O Jacob and Israel, for you are my servant. God just keeps repeating this. I've chosen you. You're my servant. Remember this. I have formed you. You are my servant, O Israel. You shall not be forgotten of me. And that's why Matthew 24 opens with Jesus saying, Do not be deceived. Coming out of Matthew 23, where he pronounces judgment on Jerusalem, comes into Matthew 24 and says, Don't be deceived. Because it's going to come to, it's going to look like God has forsaken Jerusalem and that he's forsaken his people. And so if you're deceived, you're going to believe in a false Christ and a false return of Christ. But if you understand his word and that he will never forsake his people, then when they're saying Christ has returned, he's over here, he's over there, he's in the desert, you're not going to fall for it because you know he has not forsaken his people. I have formed you. You are my servant, O Israel. 
you shall not be forgotten of me. And that's where he says, you're engraved in the palm of my hands. I have blotted out as a thick cloud. Look at this. This is the God of Israel. That yes, Israel is sinful. Yes, Judah was worse, or is worse, than the northern tribes. And yet look what God says. I have blotted out as a thick cloud your transgressions. God cannot see the transgressions of his people anymore. They have to be punished, but because of Christ's sacrifice, they can now be redeemed. And he can blot out their transgressions. As a cloud, your sins return unto me, for I have redeemed you. So God is acting to redeem Israel and to blot out her transgressions. And then he says, Sing, O you heavens, for the Lord has done it. Shout, you lower parts of the earth. Break forth into singing, you mountains, O forest and every tree therein. For the Lord has redeemed Jacob and glorified himself in Israel. So the whole creation needs to rejoice that God has done this thing. What did he do? He's glorified himself in Israel and he's redeemed Jacob. This is in the midst of all the nations. He's not saying, oh, sing everybody. God has come and he saved the world. Joy to the world. The Lord has come and he saved the whole world. He's not interested in the world. He's, his focus initially, his primary focus is redeeming Jacob and glorifying himself in Israel. Because it's when he's glorified in Israel that the power of his word will be known throughout the whole earth. And the whole earth will say, come, let us go up to the mount in Jerusalem and let's learn of the God of Jacob. Because we've heard he is glorified in Israel. And this is where we see here this glorification in Israel. In Revelation, at the end of the book, that the new Jerusalem comes down and has a wall. It has a wall, there's separation. You know, to build a wall is okay. God, God does this. It had a wall great and high, and it had 12 gates. And at the 12 gates, angels. 12 angels at the gates. And the names written on the gates, which are the names of the 12 tribes of the children of Israel. So these children of Israel, each gate of Jerusalem has one of their names on it. What does that mean? It means the whole world, as they come to, to Jerusalem, the only way in is through one of the tribes of Israel. God will be glorified in Israel and nowhere else. He is not the God of any Gentile. He's the God of Israel. And Gentiles have to repent and acknowledge Israel and come in through one of the tribes of Israel. And the nations, verse 24, the nations of them which are saved. So he is going to save the nations, but first he saves Israel. And then he, sa he, he uses Israel to save the nations. And the nations of them which are saved shall walk in the light of this new Jerusalem. And the kings of the earth do bring their glory and honor into it. So the only way into this Jerusalem is through one of the gates. And all the gates are, there's only 12 gates, and every gate is one of the tribes of Israel. So as the nations that are saved come to bring their offerings, they have to come in through Israel. And the gates of it shall not be shut at all by day, for there shall be no night there. And they shall bring the glory and honor of the nations into it. So the nations will be saved after God establishes Israel. 
after God is glorified in Israel because he is the Holy One of Israel and the nations have to acknowledge this. Back as we just finished Isaiah 44. Thus says the Lord God, your Redeemer. Oh, I thought he was the Redeemer of all mankind. I thought he was the Gentile Redeemer. He's not the Gentile Redeemer. He's the Redeemer of Jacob. And the Gentiles have to acknowledge this. And right now, there's an opening in this first fruits calling for Gentiles to come in to help God redeem Israel. We have to understand, we have to be about our Father's business. We, we think that, oh, because I'm a first fruit, this is all about me. Oh, God has come to save me. The whole world revolves around me. The whole universe revolves around me. Well, what if I wasn't born? What is God doing? And let me focus on his business and help him with his business. And his business is establishing Israel and the name of Israel. And the fact that Gentiles are brought in early, we have to read Romans 11 and understand this mystery of Israel and not become conceited. That God's focus, he has not forgotten his people. He is the redeemer of Israel. Thus says the Lord, the re your redeemer, and he that formed you from the womb, I am the Lord that makes all things. So just to be clear, when we look at the whole universe, this is the God that created the whole universe. And he's the redeemer of Israel that stretches forth the heavens alone. No one else does this. That spreads abroad the earth by myself. This is the God that frustrates the tokens of the liars. There are liars. He frustrates the tokens of the liars. I, I don't know, not, not all of you um, may have been present when I had the debate with a Muslim Imam. This is a spiritual leader of the Muslim movement of Islam. And I challenged him on the fact that his God authorizes lying. I'll just have you listen to this. And so the husband and wife analogy where male and female he created them is critical to understanding God. That this covenant agreement, when a man and a woman covenant with each other, they become one. And that oath must never be broken. God takes his word seriously. And that's where we differ with the Quran, where it teaches that it's okay to break your oath. It's okay for Muslims to lie to one another. It's okay for a husband to lie to his wife. Where God, this is true, this is what the Quran teaches. Say that again. Okay, let me, let me quote it for you. Quran 3, 28. Let not believers take disbelievers as allies rather than believers. And whoever of you does that has nothing with Allah, unless you're taking precaution against them in prudence. And Allah warns you of himself. So what he's saying here is, don't lie. Don't take uh, disbelievers as friends, unless you're going to deceive them. That's okay. That's what the Quran is actually saying. Uh, in Bukhari 52, 269, the Prophet said, war is deceit. Jihad is deceit. In Bukhari 989, 260, he says, if you ever take an oath to do something, and later on you find that something else is better, then you should expiate yeah. your oath and do what is better. The Bible says all liars will be punished. The Bible says it's impossible for God to lie. The Bible says when you, keep an, when you make an oath, you must keep it. And the okay. Bible says that God hates divorce. Okay, we're going to take another question. Uh, but, uh, Imam, do you want to respond very, very briefly? Yes, I, I, I mean, I have no words. You know, this is, again, this is very new. Uh, I'm here it's all very new to him. 
you know, being an imam, I, I never expected He's an imam. First of all, I expected it to be on the topic, but anyways, uh, you know, he's free to do that. I'm, I'm just saying that this is, you know, the, the worst thing in Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala's sight. The worst is thing lying. The worst is lying. Oh. One time lies oh, but it's okay. It's the worst thing, but it's okay. Your life is in danger wrongfully. When people are persecuting you, God knows that not everybody can can be at that high standard as in Christianity. You so you don't have to have integrity. You can be a deceiver. God will not hold them as sinners. But to God himself in Islam, lying is the worst thing. So it is the, it is the greatest. If I, if I can comment on that then. So this is being recorded and we can research the hadith and find that Muhammad allowed lying. In, in, uh, a husband can lie to his wife to preserve the marriage. That's correct. Yeah. Well, That's correct. No, let me explain though, because you see a spin is being given to this. If your wife comes to you and says, am I the most beautiful woman in the world? No, please, really. I mean, let's let's think about it. All the men here think about that, right? Some so, so lie to your wife. Can actually create problem and hurt people. If your child comes to you, you already know he has a self lower self-esteem, and he says, "Oh, dad, am I the smartest in the world?" What are you going to say? No, no, I have to tell you the truth. You know? No, you know. This is great, and this is on point. What were the question at issue? Is Allah the God of the Bible? And this very issue of allowance of lying proves that he cannot be the same God. The God of the Bible takes his word very seriously. He created everything with his word. The God of the Bible made a covenant and he, Abraham believed him and because and he knows he will never go back on his covenant. And that covenant is pictured as a, as a marriage. He says, O oh Israel, I'm married to you. All the families of the earth, you only have I known. God is faithful. And so how can you trust a God whose word tells you it's okay to lie? How, how can you bet your life on somebody who says, in the afterlife I'm going to give you this, but oh, you know what, it's okay to lie? Okay, let's have a response. Hello. Yes, I mean, you know, again, that's, uh, that's totally, you know, spinning it in a different way. As I mentioned again, that a person is, is expected to deceive. This is an imam and clearly a liar. And if I did not know their scriptures, they would just fool us. But we have to know their scriptures so that we can call them out on it. And God says he frustrates the signs of the liars. The liars in the end time are going to have signs. And God is going to frustrate these signs because they're liars. He says, and makes diviners mad that turns wise men backward and makes their knowledge foolish. So they're going to be presented as these holy men walking in the churches of assembly with a staff and turban and long robes. And God is going to turn all of this into nonsense. But the, and, and so here about liars, we see in Revelation that if we're fearful and unbelieving and abominable and murderers and whoremongers, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, all no, no exception, God cannot have untruthful people in his family. He cannot have untruthful people in his kingdom. Satan is a liar and the father of lies. And so people have to repent of all lying if they're going to be in the kingdom. And so this is very clear. Just, just that one segment alone, we have proven that this cannot be the God of the Bible. Because the God of the Bible does not endorse lying. 
it's impossible for him to lie. And they'll be thrown into the lake of fire. And so Christ tells us here ahead of time, this is why he says, don't be deceived. There are going to be false Christs and false prophets, and they're going to show great signs. These are the, these are the liars. They have great uh, tokens and signs. But God is going to frustrate these signs in so much that if it were possible, they would deceive even the very elect, even the first fruits. I've told you before, therefore, because these are liars, therefore, and I've told you ahead of time, therefore, if they say to you, he's in the desert, do not go forth. Who is gonna, who's in the desert that is going to tell us that Christ has come and he's returned to the desert? Well, again, this is where Christ expects us to be wise and to understand that this is a lie. And so here we see that there is a very rich prophecy among, is, among Islam that Christ is going to return and he's going to return to the desert and he's going to lead the Mahdi in prayer and he's going to abolish the jizya, so that's the tax on all Christians and Jews that humiliates them because there will be no more Christianity and he's going to destroy Christianity and Judaism so he's going to destroy the tax and so all of this is prophesied that he's coming to the desert. And, and we need to be aware that this is what they believe. And, and Christ is saying, when they declare to you that he's in the desert, don't go. Because if you go, it means you believe that he has forsaken Judah. And he wants to destroy Judah and destroy the house of Israel. And he, he begins the whole passage saying, don't be deceived. Don't fall for this. There's going to be false Christs, false prophets, saying he's in the, don't go, saying he's in, the, he's in the secret place. Do not fall for it. We have to understand the plan of God, and we understand it from Isaiah, what he's going to do. Just wrap up here in Isaiah. Uh, he confirms the word of his servant. So these people are liars. He's going to frustrate their signs, but he's going to confirm the word of his servant. Which servant is that? His servant Isaiah. So we have this prophecy of Isaiah, and everything that Isaiah has said, Jesus is going to confirm these prophecies and he's going to frustrate the, the signs of the liars that confirms the word of his servant and performs the counsel of his messengers. So all the prophets, all the people that said, this is the plan of God, he's going to perform it. That says to Jerusalem, so the false prophets say to Jerusalem, you must be destroyed. Jesus says to Jerusalem, you shall be inhabited. And to the cities of Judah, you shall be built. So our good news is to Jerusalem. Our good news is to the cities of Judah saying exactly this. You will be inhabited. You will be built. No matter what it looks like on the surface, no matter when we look with our eyes, it looks like you're, you're, you're going to be destroyed. We're going to tell you without any shadow of doubt, you will be inhabited. You will be built. And God himself will raise up the, the decayed places thereof. So Christ tells us, Jerusalem is going to be surrounded with armies. And when we see that, that's when the, 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 the desolation of Jerusalem is near. And yet Isaiah tells us, Jerusalem will be inhabited. Old men and, and children will play in the streets, and Jerusalem will be inhabited. And that's where Malachi himself saw this. He says, this is the burden that fell to Malachi. All the prophets are saying the same thing. That God says, I have loved you to Israel. Yet they say, how have you loved us? And this is the answer. Wasn't Esau Jacob's brother? Says the Lord, yet I love Jacob. The covenant went to Jacob. And God has covenant love for Jacob. And I hated Esau. 
It means Esau is cast off. And the only way Esau can have any relationship with God is if he repents and comes in to the covenant of Israel. And we know that Esau married into Ishmael, and East the Edomites and the Ishmaelites and all these people have been overtaken with Islam. He says, I hated Esau and laid his mountains and his heritage waste for the dragons of the wilderness. So God is going to destroy the empire of the Edomites. Whereas Edom says, we are impoverished. So when God destroys them, they're going to say, oh wow, we, what happened? We're impoverished. But we will return and build the desolate places. So this is why there's going to be people who will not keep the Feast of Tabernacles. When Christ returns, they're going to say, we're going to rebuild. We're going to, it's, it's okay, we'll just rebuild our glory. Thus says the Lord of hosts, they shall build, but I will throw down. And they shall call them the border of wickedness and the people against whom the Lord has indignation forever. He's loved, Esau, he's loved I, uh, Jacob, but he's hated Esau. There's no covenant with Esau. And your eyes shall see, and you shall say, the Lord will be magnified from the border of Israel. He is the Holy One of Israel. And, no one, and they're going to try to compete with that. And God is going to destroy any competing God, any competing ideology any competing construction project and the glory will be in Israel and from the borders of Israel his glory will spread to the whole earth we'll just finish now in Isaiah 44 in verse 27 and 28 he says that says to the deep be dry and I will dry up your rivers so this is so that when he gathers the people from the four corners of the earth there will be a pathway back to Zion There'll be a pathway to Jerusalem, so he's going to dry up the waters. And then the chapter ends with this, and really this should be the beginning of the next chapter, because this is the next subject, is he speaks of Cyrus. That says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd. This is 150 years before Cyrus is even conceived. And, and Isaiah has this prophecy to say, in the future, right now Assyria is the superpower, and Isaiah is saying to Judah, don't worry about Assyria. They're going to be destroyed. You need to worry about Babylon. Babylon is going to be the next superpower. It's going to take you captive. But then Persia is going to come up as the next superpower. It's going to crush Babylon. And this leader by name is Cyrus. And he's going to allow you to go back to Jerusalem. And this is, again, the pattern is laid down. That there's a Messiah an anointed one, that's Cyrus, who comes that enables the captives to go back to Jerusalem to rebuild Jerusalem. This is a pattern, this is an antitype. Cyrus is an antitype of Christ the Messiah. So all this time Isaiah is seeing the distant future and then he switches and he begins to see the immediate future. And the immediate future of this pattern is in Cyrus. That says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd. He is the the, 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 the Christ is the shepherd. He's a pattern of Christ and shall perform all my pleasure. And what's his pleasure? To bring his people back to Jerusalem. Even saying to Jerusalem, you shall be built and to the temple, your foundation shall be laid. So the next chapter, we'll get into Cyrus in a bit more detail. But this is amazing that God says his counsel will stand. And this is just a pattern that he's laying, laying up through Cyrus that ultimately the Messiah, Jesus Christ, is going to fulfill. 
So that's Isaiah uh, chapter 44. The first part of Isaiah is in the archive. So hopefully if you, if you didn't see that, please go back and see that so you have all of Isaiah. And God willing, we'll look at Isaiah chapter 45 next week where um, Isaiah speaks specifically of this miracle of, of Cyrus that's going to save, be a savior to Judah and be a type of the ultimate savior. What a great God we serve. And we know he's God because it's impossible for him to lie. He declares the end from the beginning, saying his counsel shall stand, and he declares himself as the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. What a great God we serve. God bless.